Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Human Behavior Show. We're back with another episode of the podcast. And this time, after the great one we had with Dr. Owen, we have Jeremy Fox, a really, really awesome human being and a therapist who specializes in trauma, a subject I've explored a lot recently, especially in the last year on platforms such as Clubhouse. So I've got Jeremy as my guest today, so we'll say hey to him. And just a reminder, this podcast will be available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, so please subscribe. Love everyone's feedback. And yeah, love learning from the community we've built and uh, taking on suggestions from the listeners. So Jeremy, welcome. Nice to see you here, buddy. Uh, Would love for you to give a bit of your background to the listeners. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This is this is wonderful. First day on this app, so I'm um, I'm happy to be here. So, hey everyone. So, like Doctor S said, I'm Jeremy Fox. I'm a licensed professional counselor. So that means I can diagnose clients with mental health conditions, accept insurance payments for therapy, um, work with insurance panels, that kind of stuff. And I specialize in trauma. So, in addition to my degree. I did a lot of postgraduate work learning the methodologies, the methods that help to overcome trauma. So those intrusive memories and things I'm sure we'll get into here um, on the show. But I specialize in a therapy called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. No, it's a mouthful, but it's an exposure-based therapy. And exposure is often one of the key ways out of trauma. Um, with an ethical therapist, you know, desensitizing those fears. So I've been doing work in the EMDR field and wrote an academic article on it. Um, I've been working in that since 2015. So intensely, like the past seven years, it seems like it's flown by some days, not the last two as much, but um, working with clients. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Jeremy, I mean, that's such a great um, intro and um, you have such a specialization as well with EDMR. I'm super excited to kind of learn more about that for, for the listeners to find out. And I talked to Dr. Owen about this as well. There's been a lot of talk about mental health. And you said the last two years, finally, you, you mentioned those years. And those years have been pretty pivotal in, uh, you know, human, I guess, human history, the way we do things, the way we interact. And it's just highlighted things like loneliness traumas of so many different kinds um emphasis on looking after your mental health and even looking at therapy differently i mean it wasn't long ago that when someone thought about therapy they thought about okay this person must be suffering from you know a pretty drastic mental illness and therapy wasn't seen as someone as something that you know a lot of lot more people should embrace, right? And I've been seeing kind of this shift and and I hear, for example, a lot of entrepreneurs, they all have therapists, for example, right? Mental health is something that we all have. It can, you know, fall into worse states for all of us, for any of us, and it can be in better states for any of us. So I see it as a continuum. And we all need to be addressing our mental health, you know, almost daily and when we are in spots of trouble or you know it's not going well for us we need help we need professionals we need people like you we need psychiatrists we need therapists and i love that the conversation is changing there and people are looking at therapists in a way you know people look at you know for physical health they look at physical therapists as well you know because we can see physical symptoms 
people have embraced it so much more differently. And now with mental health, people are recognizing that. And um, that's been really good to see. Jeremy, I'd love to kind of, first of all, hear what's your take on this this kind of change. Do you think it's actually happening? Are you seeing more and more people um, going for therapy? And then after that, I'd love if you kind of tell us about trauma. Tell us what trauma is, what it can be caused by. And um, then we'll kind of go into EDMR and what you do. Oh, that sounds absolutely awesome. So first of all, I think that the sort of sea change in our field um, in therapy and the acceptability of getting treatment is definitely a welcome one. So, and it's sad because in some ways, I think the the pandemic showed that if people had kind of a crack in the, their wall, right, um, the, the pandemic widened that. It was a, a, a traumatic event, right, that caused that crack to kind of deepen in people's functioning. And so it was massive isolation that happened as a result. And of, of course, staying safe and away from people, unfortunately, was necessary for a good while. Um, but we know that human beings, and we can get into kind of the definition of trauma in the brain too, which ties into this, but human beings require contact, especially in the early years of life. But throughout the lifespan, human connection is not a higher order thing on the hierarchy of needs. It's not the tip top. We don't need to, to see it that way. Um, make no mistake, like lo- increased loneliness correlates with increased mental health concerns. And actually community is something associated with a longer life. Studies show that there's a strong link between in-person community, your amount of social connections and your longevity And so in your field, in the medical field, these psychological factors seep in and are integrated very strongly. So I think isolation and needing someone to to bear witness to one's struggles and issues in that regard were part of what kicked off the sort of mental health crisis that resulted in seeking treatment during the last two years. I think some apps that came out made it easier. I think one big thing that's kind of a boring point but necessary for people to know is insurance panels began accepting telehealth sessions really across the different panels, across different insurances, private and non, private and public insurance, both said, okay, well, this is necessary now. And so there was a massive acceptance on a professional and social level of uh, digitally provided therapy, whether that's on a platform with, you know, on face-to-face on Zoom or something like that, or a, a medical platform like doxy.me is one. Um, And some text-based interventions were seen as more acceptable as well. So that was huge. I think that enabled it. And then maybe there was a generalization effect where in-person stuff people began seeking as well as was safe, like moving to in-person therapy after maybe starting remotely. So love it. I hope this continues. And I hope that people see it as more of a preventative thing too. And Dr. S. Yeah, if you wanted to add something in, please. Yeah, Jeremy, absolutely. Technology has changed things. And I think you summarized what's happened really well. And now I'm actually super interested for the listeners to kind of um, learn from you. What is trauma? Can, can you tell us about that? Can you tell us about what are some of the causes and, and the impact of trauma? 100%. So I love to go to the work of Peter Levine, and he has a brilliant definition for it. So trauma can be defined as any unresolved autonomic nervous system response, okay? It's about the nervous system's response to an event, not necessarily the event itself. So when you feel trapped or restricted, 
okay, buy something, whether it's a car crash, you see that moment of impact and it gets frozen, right? That's a common one with car crash trauma. So you feel helpless, your, your autonomic nervous system kicks in. So let's break that down. Your sympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight response, right? Increased heart rate, um, dry mouth, your body's directing attention. It's directing your metabolic energy away from digestion and relaxation to mobilization. Okay. From relaxation to mobilization. There you go. And it's, and in that moment, you can't do anything with it. You can't go somewhere and let out that energy. You can't escape. That is a huge recipe for trauma is feeling trapped and also stressed and under a life-threatening circumstance. So immobilization and danger, those two ingredients produce a traumatic response. And again, it's about the way your brain encodes it. So, so often people develop traumatic memories during childhood because as a child, you can't escape, right? You can't fight or flee. So what happens? People often freeze, okay? They maybe dissociate or mentally go somewhere else because if you can't fight or flee, you drop into a freeze response. And that's one of the most traumatic things possible is you feel your body betrayed you. And so again, that often happens in childhood because you know you can't fight or flee. You have to potentially stay in this situation. And so what happens is that memory that occurs when you experience that kind of event, that memory is encoded in the brain viscerally. So that just means as a physical memory, as something that if you smell something related to a situation or you hear or see something, that memory comes back as the emotion, as the physical sensation, maybe heart pounding or feeling trapped because your amygdala is hyperactive. It's, it's online. That emotion center in your brain predominantly is active during that extreme cascade of physical responses when you're not in your frontal lobe, right? So to, to kind of sum it all up, you feel trapped in some way, can't escape, your brain activates that emotional response and you feel terrorized. And then later that memory comes back in that form and not as a fact like, Oh, this happened to me and I don't like it. So I'll pause there. Else I, want to I mean, Jeremy, add. that's so well explained. Um, going into the science of it. And um, it shows because a lot of people talk about trauma and some people think, Oh, is it something which is actually a physiological process, right? And we know you and I being kind of health professionals, we know that it is, right? And you've explained the ins and outs of what's happening in the brain, what's happening physiologically and biochemically, and therefore it needs to be treated. It needs the right help. So Jeremy, that's where you come in. Can you tell the listeners why approaching a professional is important when you have trauma? Um, what should your steps be? And then I'd love to hear more about EDMR. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get into that. So first of all, don't be afraid. To, this is a big thing I tell everyone who's potentially looking for therapy. Never be afraid to ask questions. It's your mind. You have the right to know the qualifications of who you're seeking out, right? I would recommend that for severe trauma, so maybe multiple episodes of trauma, which by the way, that's now being looked at as a separate diagnosis called complex PTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. We won't get too much into that, but um, for severe trauma, I really recommend that you find a therapist who specializes in it. Like if you're looking on psychology today, 
see if trauma is a passion that they write about, if they, if they list that as a specialty. And then when you do a consultation call or an intake, ask them their philosophy on trauma treatment, how they approach it. Do they have postgraduate training? Medical professionals specialize in different um, specialties. So you have someone who specializes in sleep or is it, you have general practitioners, but you also have um, specialists in endocrinology, right? So don't be afraid to look at that and see what works for you. Um, the biggest thing is you want a therapy that's an EBP, an evidence-based practice. Nowhere really is that more important than in trauma because you may very well be reliving some of that in session. So I tell clients, you know, you have this underlying level of emotional energy that's going to, to avoidance of trauma or to reliving it. So in my office, you may that baseline may get a little higher. You actually may be more aroused emotionally and upset, but guess what? When that treatment's done, it's going to lower that baseline to a point where you don't have that level of hyper arousal. So that's part of informed consent, right? Is telling a client, Hey, this may be uncomfortable before it gets better. That's how we desensitize to our memories. And that's a really good segue. EMDR is a therapy that is exposure based. So the therapist when it gets to that, the fourth phase, that's right, there's three before it that are involved in preparation. But when you're in that fourth phase that people often think of as EMDR therapy, it's called desensitization. You can kind of imagine what that is. You have the client think of the worst part of the memory, the emotions, the negative core beliefs. So there's some CBT, cognitive behavior elements there, by the way. And you have that client dial it up and lock into that signal, like a Wi-Fi signal. And then the therapist moves their hand or has a light bar that has the client move their eyes, or you have these little hand buzzers that go back and forth. And there's science behind it, right? We know that those eye movements can trigger memory consolidation and reconsolidation. It's a big term, which means it pulls up the memory and it stores it differently, right? So there's so much evidence for that that's really cool that I can geek out over, but we'll save that and just go into the generalities of you're being distracted while pulling up that vivid memory and your brain is reconsolidating, restoring it and saying, wait a minute, I'm in the present now. Your brain is sampling that present safety and pulling away from the memory enough that you're actually interfering with that memory. And as a doctor, Dr. S, you know that memories are pliable. When you bring them up, you interact with them. We actually change our memories pretty regularly. They're not as stable as we think often, we, there may be more fear added onto it if we keep rehearsing it, and that's how phobias are built. But it's amazing how much control we have over our memories. So EMDR helps to peel back the layers of that traumatizing onion and take away some vividness. And if you're thinking, wow, that's powerful and it sounds kind of scary, that's why you have to find someone who's really trained in EMDR and went through typically a six-day course to learn to do it the right way and titrate. So, so hold in one hand that past focus and then the other that present safety for the client and jeremy that highlights why experts are so important and um edmr seems like i mean can be very effective for a lot of people do you have kind of any any um data or any stats on on how um, effective edmr is for people yes i i have tons of articles we can link um, I do know that it performs very well compared to CBT and uh, other therapies that are like that. I be- it's, 
there's a different memory effect where when people are asked later, they actually have different connotations attached that I think is unique to EMDR because it's the R. It's the reprocessing element. Like people can look back and say, oh, I remember this element during the reprocessing and I learned this lesson from it. Like I can do this to protect myself. I can do that. Um, here's, here's some stats. It's 77% success rate uh, treating PTSD, which by the way is pretty, pretty good. Um, we know that any, like above 50% for a lot of different kind of therapies can be, can be good. Uh, I would love to get some more research to you. I don't have a ton of those particular stats off the top of my head, but there's been a lot of meta analyses that have proven that not only is EMDR effective, but there is a proprietary effect. There's a, and there's a significant effect to the eye movements as well as a distracting task. It's not just as we thought that it's just the elements of exposure, right? It's also that eye movement because the exposure therapies ex- existed for decades. EMDR is now 34 uh, years old, but even before that people were practicing exposure. Um, studies have shown 84 to 90% of single event trauma victims no longer had PTSD symptoms after three 90 minute EMDR sessions. That's also a stat that I just found. So there's, there's a lot of statistics out there for it. And Honestly, I only believe in, like I said, evidence-based practices for stuff because you have something to hold on to. Jeremy, I love the stats. And what are, in terms of your clients and patients that come and see you, what are some of the common causes of, of trauma that you come across? Oh, that's a brilliant question. I mean, all these have been just so helpful, but this pivots into the ACEs study that anyone who's worth their salt in the trauma treatment realm knows about. So that stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, the ACEs. Uh, and actually, it's a scale now, so that could be for scale as well. Um, but it was run a few decades ago, I think, by Kaiser Permanente. And it asked different questions based on factors and some really cool um, psychological analysis of things that happened when, when people were younger that were correlated with poor mental health outcomes as they grew up and the, the risk of trauma. So if someone had a very unstable upbringing and parents were often like incarcerated or uh, they witnessed abuse from one parent on another, right? Or there was quite a lot of physical, you know, and that can entail different physical abuse types, I'll just leave it there, or verbal abuse, a feeling that nothing you did matter, being consistently told that you were unimportant. I see a lot of people with that, with just chronic humiliation growing up and not having that safe anchor that we learned about in attachment psychology, that you have that one person, if you even have one person as a buffer who was in your corner. So for many people, that might have been a grandparent, right? then that tends to buffer against being as traumatized, the, the chances of PTSD. But I see a lot of people who had invalidating home environments, single episode trauma, like car accidents, of course, things like that, or brushes with death. But more often, I'll just say overwhelmingly, people who were either in an abusive relationship as an adult or had an abusive parent verbally or emotionally. That's, that's a lot of people that I'll see that come to me. I would say similar. I mean, the people I've I've kind of come across in my medical training, um, often um, things you described that the similar things that do come up. And 
post-traumatic stress disorder is, I would say, it can be very poorly dealt with when it first presents and um, if you don't pick it up. And that's why I think really engaging with a good therapist is, is so, so important. So Jeremy, my question there would be is that people who have been victims of trauma, are they more likely to inflict trauma on other people? That's something which gets spoken about a lot. Mm, that's also good. So a lot of different factors involved there. So I would say, possibly, I would say, and you can look at data on this, and I need to refresh myself on it. I know that if someone grows up in an abusive home, there very, very well may be more of a chance that there's unrest in their, in their home. So when they go from their family of origin, we call it, which is the mom and dad and the nuclear family, uh, however they grew up, then if those elements of behavior, like learning that certain things are acceptable or a way to express your emotions like yelling or, you know, physical demonstrations that are frightening, then again, if untreated or unexamined, then there may be more of a chance that that is taken into that new family context in a new relationship. And by the way, it might be that someone learns, okay, emotions are scary when dad is upset he acts out, he does this, he drinks, he abuses. And that person may go the other way and learn to avoid, right? Learn to avoid emotion and shut down. And that affects children too, right? So sometimes the opposite effect of learning not to be explosive, but instead implosive and avoid talking when upset and avoid intimacy, avoid an attachment, that can certainly come from that sort of a home background and that can cause someone to, you know, the next generation to not deal with their emotions properly. That's the biggest thing that I've noticed is that when emotions get a certain narrative attached to them that's unquestioned, instead of that golden narrative, I would call it, of expression, appropriate expression, then there's a, a twisted relationship to emotions and intimacy that can that can continue and perpetuate. Yes. Jeremy, I'm loving this conversation because of how important it is to a lot of people. And I'm seeing people be more open about traumas they face now and coming out of, you know, with how they may have been you know, traumatized or gone through trauma. Do you think it's becoming more acceptable to talk about trauma? Um, do you think um, trauma dumping, that's a term that's used a lot especially we know we've been on you know social media platforms people want to voice things that have happened do you think that's appropriate um does that help um i would love kind of your take on them so first off i think people by and large are now socially in the western world at least more open to discussions of trauma i mean it's wild to think about the fact that ptsd in world war one and world war two was really known as shell shock and it was limited to military veterans and survivors. And even then it was kind of seen as, oh, you know, it was kind of stigmatized. I'll put it that way, I think. So I wasn't alive in World War II, obviously. But the, the narrative has shifted from that level of we don't talk about what happened when um, Tom came back from the war, but sometimes he goes off and doesn't seem like he's there to now then saying, okay, well, let's widen it. PTSD is not just for military exposure or danger. It can also be domestic stuff and other different factors that impact at different traumatizing events. Now with the advent of, as you said, social audio, and also with platforms like TikTok and YouTube, 
people are talking about trauma a lot more, exponentially more, probably by hundreds of percentage points here compared to how it used to be spoken about in the media. And I think with that comes new opportunity, right? But also new dangers. So if people view themselves with a lot of fragility and that anything that could happen could traumatize them instantly, I, I want to be a voice of calm and of moderation here and say, we talked about that definition at the beginning of our episode today, that it's typically feeling trapped and in danger, right? So people are very resilient. I have a lot of parents as clients who are really well-intentioned who will say, oh, I really don't want to traumatize my kid. I know what happened to me if they see this or they do that, or if they think I'm away for a minute, it's like, well, here's what trauma looks like, right? When your kid knows that you're a safe anchor for them and that life happens and you're there to catch them and you're there to be there, they're so much less likely to, to have a memory encode in the way that it becomes a traumatic memory. And so I want to remind people, you know, we know a lot more about trauma and it's very prevalent, make no mistake about it, but also everything isn't trauma. And so I want to be very sensitive when I say that, but I think that's a hopeful message too, right? Like things can hurt and be upsetting, but not come back as flashbacks or intrusive memories or intrusive symptoms. Um, and so I'll put that out there. And I think you asked me something else as well. Remind. Oh, oh, yes. Trauma. Okay. So that's a that's a term that for the audience it, it just means someone really sharing a lot of. For me, I've experienced it that way in club. You know, vivid details about what happened. I don't think it. I think it can be helpful to tell your story in a group setting that is therapeutically appropriate with all the consents signed and where someone is moderating that for that purpose, a process group, we would call that. And someone bears witness and you have a supportive community there and you recognize you're safe. That absolutely is not trauma dumping. That's group trauma treatment. And it can be, again, very helpful. In an environment like Clubhouse, where conversations are by necessity psychoeducational, meaning education about psychology, it's not an appropriate place to share all your intimate details of a memory because you could have an emotional sort of intimacy hangover and feel some shame afterward. And the person speaking there, even if they're a therapist like me, is not your therapist. And so they're not licensed and they're not able to conduct the kind of therapy, even group therapy on Clubhouse, that's helpful. So you may be left really with this sense of of, well, that didn't do anything or it, it doesn't, it doesn't help. And people also, if you're sharing your story, that alone is not typically going to be curative. There have to be other factors there, like recognizing you're in the present, you know, sometimes that desensitization or exposure, but wanting to be heard can be amazingly helpful, but typically that alone does not overcome a traumatically encoded memory, I would say. Jeremy, I love the talk of how memories, reprocessing, trauma, how all these links are established. And I'm pretty fascinated by memory formation and um, how that works. And I think going forward in this age of computation, it'd be very interesting how the human mind and technology play a part in our memory. And now just for the final part, it's um, going a little away from trauma and focusing on therapy. What are your thoughts? I know, I know you've worked well. You have a lot of um, well interest in, in through stuff we've done together as well. A lot of startup related things. A lot of top CEOs 
say they have therapists and they need their therapist because it's such a stressful environment. We know entrepreneurs suffer from highest rates of burnout, anxiety, depression, right? And then Dr. Owen, we've talked about in the last episode, um, how some of these personality traits like narcissism present themselves in people who are super successful. How important is it for these high achieving individuals to have a therapist and, and seek therapy? I love it. I think it's extremely important. I think that stress in the pursuit of work, even at a, at a panic attack level, right, is normalized in, in society across the board, not just in Western society, Eastern as well. So it's kind of a blind spot, right? I mean, when, when it's toward a goal, then inordinate, so just high levels of stress seen as, okay, that's part of, that's part and parcel that goes, that comes with the territory. So I think if someone solely gets their identity from their work, that's a, that's a ticking time bomb. Okay. So I say that I wrote an academic paper about EMDR. I'm very ambitious about the field. I love to go beyond what I have to know as a therapist and into the medical realm. But when I start to see that I'm hyper-focusing on that and becoming too consumed by it, I need to take a step back. And that's, that's taken practice by the way. And you have to as a therapist or you'll burn, you'll burn out and you won't be able to help anyone. And that's a sort of logical element that I draw on. It's like, okay, well, if I go too far and I burn out, this is not going to be helpful. It's, it's not all or nothing. Excellence, not perfection. That's the goal. So I think you touched on if someone is really identifying with their work and they learned growing up, perform and get love. Perform, receive adoration and approval. That's a narrative to address. And you don't lose. This is another thing I think therapists need to do better messaging on is it's not about walking away from your job and going on a retreat and meditate. I mean, unless you want to, good goodness, if you want to do that, do it. But you can also manage this in your day to day. You can recognize triggers of extreme stress. I've worked with CEOs. I've worked with high performers. And a big thing to do is normalize part of your job will involve exposure to rejection, exposure to deadlines and things that may come and go, difficult personalities you may have to manage. And where are you feeling that in your body and how are you responding? Maybe some visual scripting work with a therapist where you desensitize a worst case scenario of losing a deal or um, having to, to let someone go or even something negative in an interpersonal space, but widening where you derive your identity, maybe not from projects themselves, but from your core competencies and from your hobbies as well. Even if you have time for maybe one good hobby that doesn't even take a lot of your week, it's starting where those people can spare some time and mindfulness because you can practice mindfulness for 30 seconds a minute. It's starting where they are and expanding that window of tolerance into more of a, a, a practice. Jeremy, I need to get you back on another episode because this has been absolutely fantastic and there's just so much more we need to delve deeper into. And we might do a joint show. So guys, we'll probably do a joint show with Jeremy, Dr. Owen, and I have to get Dr. Carlene on as well. And that'd be kind of a super, super podcast I'll have lined up here on Call and App. We will be a bunch of us together. So you've had an interest in Jeremy, um, talks about some great, really important stuff um really someone who's um you know um in the mental health field trying to help move it forward um you can definitely follow him i would definitely encourage you that jeremy where can people follow you well thank you very much they can find me on twitter at fox therapy llc they can find me 
on um, Instagram. I'm on there as well at Fox Counselor. Um, of course, on here, this is new Clubhouse. It's at Fox Therapy. I may have said that. Um, and people can outreach me here. I don't know if you can message, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm out there, and I am happy to provide just psychoeducation. If people are looking for therapists, I really encourage them to Google emdria.org. And that's the international EMDR website where you enter in your zip code or city and you can find someone who does EMDR trauma work near you. How amazing is that? And it's all over the world too. So definitely happy to connect with other people and, and always address stuff to do with mental health. And um, it was great to be here. Dr. S, this is fun. This is a great talk. You asked some really amazingly relevant, salient questions for our mental health world today as it's changing. Thanks, Jeremy. Always a pleasure. And I love having these discussions with you. And everyone, please do follow Jeremy um, and, and download the call-in app. That's where I'm hosting these human behavior shows. Um, we're on to, you know, we're approaching episode 20 pretty quickly. And now I'm going to start publicizing the podcast a lot more and we'll get a lot more voice in the episodes. I wanted to do the groundwork, get some of these um, superheroes who I have with me in social audio, talking about a range of very interesting topics, bringing them to you. And now we'll start to expand as well. So thank you everyone for tuning in. Please subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and check us out on Calling Up. I will catch everyone in the next show. Cheers, Jeremy.